Amen. Jesus, thank you that you have pursued us and made us yours. We're so overwhelmed this morning with how great your love for us is. And as we look at your word this morning, Lord, take your word and apply it to our hearts. Overwhelm us with how amazing your grace is, how deep your love for us is. Thanks for letting us be together to study your scripture, to sing to you. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. You can grab a seat. So good to see you this morning. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Hosea, and we're going to look at this staggering story, this crazy story in the book of Hosea. So about 16 months ago, we were still living in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was November, and my daughter and I, were, my youngest, we were outside by the fire pit, and I took a picture of this, this moment that I'll, I'll never forget. It was the first time that we had this conversation about her future spouse, and she was eight. She was eight years old, and she says to me, um, Daddy, what kind of boy do you want me to marry? <laughs> Oh, ooh. I said, well, in, in about 40 years, when you, uh, now I said, um, Evie, I'm so thankful. I, I'm, I'm, I prayed, God, give me wisdom on what to say here. I said, I'm so thankful that you care what daddy thinks. And I hope you'll always care what I think about this. You're always going to care, right? You promise you're always going to care. And this is what I hope for you. I hope that you would find a boy or a boy would find you that, however that works, that loves Jesus and loves you and respects you and loves people and treats people well and is hardworking. Um, that, that's the kind of boy I would want you to marry. And she says, oh, that's great, Dad. There's a boy in my class just like that. <laughs> so we moved to California, and it's been great to... Uh, <laughs> It's been great to be here. But evidently, we start looking at a really young age for compatibility. Who is going to be the right match? I haven't been to the Shanghai marriage market, but this actually takes place every Saturday and Sunday, rain or shine, for five hours. Grandparents and parents will post profiles of grandkids that they're hoping they can marry off or children that they're hoping they can marry off, and they will post pictures on walls uh, in Shanghai at this marriage market, or they'll post them on umbrellas, and they will peruse around looking for a potential match for their grandchild or for their child. And if they see a match that interests them and the parents of the grandparents there, they will compare notes and exchange numbers in hopes of setting up a date. They're looking for compatibility. Huffington Post said this about the Shanghai marriage market. In terms of content, the advertisements are the inverse of a Tinder profile. Pictures and names are scarce, but salary and home ownership status are stated outright. So everyone's looking, no matter what culture we're in, everyone's looking for compatibility. I've met many of you here who met your spouse on Match.com, and you're not alone. 72 million active users or have been active users on Match.com, and the whole point is to match you with someone that their algorithm deems to be compatible with you, to be a match for you. And when Match.com first started, they, they basically took your word for it on the kind of person that you would want to be with. But they've learned over time 
that people actually step outside of, their, of what they say they want in a person and search other profiles. So now their algorithm called Synapse, I know you wanted to learn this today. Now their algorithm called Synapse triangulates what you say you would like in a person, what your history of searching on the site says you actually want in a person, and friends or, or people that are just like you who they search for. And so all of that is triangulated to serve up potential matches that could be perhaps compatible to you. So we're all looking for compatibility from my daughter asking about a future husband to a marriage market in Shanghai to match.com. We look for people that are compatible to us. Well, the story we're going to look at today in the book of Hosea is the antithesis of compatibility. These are not two people you would expect to get together at all. If they, their profiles were at a marriage market in Shanghai, no family members would say that should be a match. No algorithm is going to connect Hosea and Gomer together. This is a shocking story. And I want us to understand as we read this story that it is not an instructive story for us about human love. It's an illustrative story for us about God's great love for you. The story of Hosea and Gomer is not a story where we take three or four lessons to apply to our human relationships as much as it's a story about how deep and great God's love for you is, that it's shocking his love for you, that his love for you is otherworldly, it's irrational, it doesn't make sense from a human perspective. That's how great his love for you is. And so if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here. And you've perhaps heard that we believe God is love, that Jesus is love. And I hope today you'll see just how great his love for you is. And for those of us here who are Christians, this is gonna be a reminder for us that his love extends to us today, even after becoming his. All right, so let's look at this story. It begins in Hosea chapter one, verse two. And Hosea is a prophet. Hosea is a preacher in the Old Testament, and God's gonna ask him to marry a woman named Gomer. And this is a shocking request. So look with me, verse two. So when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, go and marry a woman of promiscuity and have children of promiscuity. Like do what, God? <laughs> Whoa, wait, wait a second. So God is saying to a prophet, you marry a woman who's going to cheat on you and you're going to have children with her, and some of the children are gonna be yours, some of the children you're not sure if they're yours or not, but you are gonna marry a woman of promiscuity. Now this, if you were invited to the wedding ceremony, was an awkward wedding ceremony. <laughs> not only does God ask Hosea, a prophet, to marry a woman of promiscuity, but her name's Gomer. I mean, so this is a, this is a weird wedding ceremony, right? And so Jose and Gomer are getting married and they're friends, Gomer's friends and Hosea's friends. They have never hung out with each other before. 
They don't go to the same types of places on the weekend. I mean, these are two very different circles of friends, two very different groups, and they come together. And I mean, the ceremony was awkward. The, the, the uh, rehearsal dinner was awkward. The reception was awkward. No one knew exactly how to act. The only thing they were clear on is what side of the auditorium they were going to sit on. We're with the groom or we're with the bride. No, we're with her. We're with her. We don't know those people over there. And so they sat in different parts and they watched this incredible wedding ceremony take place as God asked a prophet to marry a woman who would cheat on him. Now, why would God do this? Well, notice the next phrase. For the land is committing blatant acts of promiscuity by abandoning the Lord. So this is why God does it. God says to Hosea, who's a prophet in Israel, my people, Israel, they are committing adultery against me. We see in this passage how our idolatry, our worship of things other than him, breaks the heart of God. It is spiritual adultery against him. If you're doing the annual read this, this year with us at Mariners, the memory verse this coming week is when God tells his people in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other God, little g God, before me. And this is what's taking place in the book of Hosea. God's people are violating that command and they are worshiping and pursuing things other than God. And God says, I want you, Hosea, to marry a woman of promiscuity because I want your marriage to be a ma just this massive object lesson to the people so they can see how their sin hurts me because that's what my people are doing to me. I've set my love on them, my affection on them, and they've walked out on me over and over again. It's blatant and they're abandoning me. And so marry a woman of promiscuity. And so Hosea does, verse three. So Hosea went and married Gomer, daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. The rest of chapter one are the children that they have together. And then somewhere before chapter three, Gomer does as expected and she leaves Hosea. Hosea is now a single dad. He has children that he had with Gomer and he's taking care of them. He's probably fallen on difficult times because he's taking care of the kids and can't work as much as he was working in that culture. And Gomer is gone. And the question is, how is God going to treat Hosea and Gomer? Because it's a picture of how God treats us. And so maybe you're thinking that God would tell Hosea, Hosea, she walked out on you, it's over, you're done. As if God would say to us, you walk out on me, I'm done with you. But that's not what God tells Hosea. Maybe you think God would tell Hosea, you waited home, and you be gracious to her when she comes to her senses and comes back home, then you be gracious to her. And maybe if that's what God would say to Hosea, it would be God saying to us, you walked away from me, people of Israel, you walked away, and if you come back, I'll receive you. But that's not at all what God does. This is why this story is shocking because of chapter three, and what God tells Hosea to do of how he tells Hosea to express love to the one who's walked out on him. And remember, Gomer and Hosea is a picture of God's love for his people. Chapter three, verse one. The Lord said to me, go again, 
show love to a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, just as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. <laughs> like, what does that mean? I mean, I'm tracking the story until the raisin cake part. And so, I mean, it's clear, even God prefers chocolate chip cookies to oatmeal raisin cake cookies. And so why is God crack on raisin cakes? I mean, what's the deal here? So you need to understand in this culture, raisin cakes were used in idol worship ceremonies. So when God's people left worshiping God and started worshiping statues, little G gods, idols, in those feasts, in those worship gatherings, not of God, but of things other than God, they would pass out raisin cakes and eat those. And so God is saying, my people have left me, abandoned me. They worship things other than me. They eat these raisin cakes at these ceremonies when they're not worshiping me. And I love them still in the midst of their sin. And I want you to prove my love for my people by going and pursuing Gomer in the middle of her unfaithfulness. You go pursue her. Don't just wait at home for her. Go get her. Go chase her and show your, uh, show your love for her that way. And notice what happens next, verse two. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and five bushels of barley. I said to her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be promiscuous or belong to any man and I will act the same way towards you. And so what Hosea does is shocking. He leaves his home. And he walks pursuing, seeking the woman who made a vow to him, but left him. Hosea goes on a mission to seek and to save that which is lost. He goes pursuing the bride who left him. And he comes to this slave auction block where in that culture, you could sell yourself into slavery or someone else would sell you into slavery. And he sees Gomer on the slave auction block. Now, either a man that she's been with has mistreated her and abused her and sold her into slavery, or she's decided herself because she's fallen on such hard times to sell herself into slavery so she can eat and live. But regardless, she's on the slave auction block and the typical price for a slave was 30 shekels of silver, but Hosea doesn't have 30 shekels of silver. He's a single dad. And he's spent the last several years taking care of the kids and he hasn't worked as much as he used to. And so he walks through the crowd of people who knows that is Hosea's wife that is being sold into slavery. And Hosea walks through the crowd and handles all of the humiliating stares and the jeers and the laughter at the poor guy who's showing up to actually pay money for his own wife. This is shocking, this story. And Hosea says, I know the price is 30 shekels of silver, but all I have is 15. And so I'll pay the balance in barley. I'm paying with everything I have for my own wife. This is a story about how God loves his people. And ultimately, this is a story about how much Jesus loves you. Because in this story, I am Gomer and you are Gomer too. Because all of us have wandered from the Lord. All of us have pursued things other than him. 
all of us have loved things that are less than him more than we love him. See, that's ultimately what sin is, loving things that are less than him more than we love him. And that's what I've done. I am Gomer. I have wandered from the Lord and he loved me so much that he chose me and adopted me and made me his own, even though he knew I would wander. And that's how much he loves you. That he pursued you and went after you, even though he knew you would wander. And in this story, Jesus is Hosea, who leaves his home who steps into our broken and messed up world and who seeks and saves, who pursues us and chases us and finds us in the slavery of our sin and says, I'm paying with everything I have for him. I'm paying with everything I have for her. He purchased us not with silver or gold, but with his own blood when he rescued us from the empty way of life that was handed down to us by our forefathers. He purchased us with everything he had. We are Gomer and he is Hosea and his love is shocking and relentless and otherworldly and it's greater than any human love you will ever know. That's how much, that's how much he loves you. And so what exactly is his love for me. We're going to look one last time in this series at 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to see the last four phrases of this passage to understand just how amazing his love for you is. The scripture says this about love, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. One time my wife and I were at a marriage conference or um, a message to married couples. And it was one of the worst days of my life. (laughs) Because in this sermon, uh, the preacher, I think, butchered this passage. He basically said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You substitute your name in place of the word love and evaluate yourself. And I knew where he was going. So I was like, oh man, this dude is not about to do this to me in front of my wife. Uh, You substitute your name and evaluate yourself. And then he said, now I want you to evaluate your spouse and you can talk about it to each other. So this was horrible because Kay's sitting there, you know, Eric is patient. Salmon traffic last week, no. Eric is kind. Mm, Sometimes Eric doesn't envy. Do floor seats count? Um, She's basically you know, evaluating me because that's what the preacher asked her to do. But listen, I think he missed the whole point because none of us meet this list because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God because all of us are Gomer and there's only one person who fulfills this list perfectly and it's not us at all. In fact, if you think you fulfill this list perfectly, no one wants to be around you (laughs) because the only person who pulls this off is Jesus. He's the only one who loves perfectly, right? 
And so let's substitute the word love, not for our name, but for his name. Let's understand that only his love is perfect. So Jesus is patient. And he is. He's patient with you. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Isn't that good news? That Jesus doesn't have a filing cabinet with all of my wrongs listed in them. There's no record of wrongs. There's no record of your wrongs. Jesus doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Jesus finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never ends. Jesus is love. So we're going to look real quickly at those four phrases to help us understand how great his love is. Number one, Jesus bears all things. The phrase there in the original language for bears all things is a beautiful phrase. It means to cover in a cloak of silence or a cloak of darkness. This is good. This means that on the cross, Jesus bore in his flesh, bore in his body, all of your sin, all of your shame, and it's been covered in a cloak of silence. It's been covered in a cloak of darkness. All of your sin is gone because Jesus bore it on himself. Jesus bears all things. And so the loudness of your sin has been silenced because it's been placed on Jesus instead of on you. Jesus bears all things. When Hosea walked through the crowd to purchase Gomer from the slave auction block, he bore in his mind and he bore in his body the painful stares of the crowd. Before Hosea showed up, everybody stared at Gomer in her nakedness and in her shame. And then when Hosea shows up and walks through the crowd and says, I'm buying her with everything I have, the stairs went from going towards Gomer, towards going towards Hosea. He bore in his body all of the stairs, and Jesus has bore in his flesh all of your shame. Jesus bears all things. Charles Spurgeon says this, As far as God is concerned, this is for those of us who are Christians. As far as God is concerned, your sin has ceased to be. He laid it on Jesus Christ, your substitute, and he took it and bore the penalty of it. Number one, Jesus bears all things. Number two, Jesus believes all things. This phrase in the original language means that Jesus finds no fault where there is no fault. That he's not looking for fault in you. He's not walking around waiting for you to blow up. He's not walking around waiting for things to go wrong in your life. He's not walking around behind you constantly keeping a record of everything you've done wrong in this life. That's not how he is towards you. 
And some of you know the painful feeling of someone being that way towards you. Maybe you've had an employer or a parent or a spouse or a friend who concludes something about you and constantly evaluates you to see how you're falling short of this conclusion they already have of you. Does anybody else have that experience? They're checking every word you say, or they're, every, they're nuancing everything about your life, and they constantly have a list of you seeing if you blow it. Jesus is not that way. He doesn't walk behind you waiting to see you mess up. He walks with you because he believes all things for you. Jesus doesn't love a future version of you. Jesus loves you right now, right where you are. And he believes all things for you. And he believes that he will change you and transform you more into his image. Jesus believes all things. Next, number three. Jesus hopes all things. This phrase in the original language means to hold on to hope in the face of opposition. And there is a lot of opposition in my life towards Jesus. Because I'm still filled with my brokenness. I'm still filled with my struggles and my sin. And that opposes Jesus. But yet Jesus holds on to me when I stop holding on to him. Jesus holds on to you when you stop holding on. Your faithfulness is fragile, but his faithfulness to you is fixed. He keeps believing things and hoping all things for you. Jesus hopes all things. My love and your love towards him is inconsistent, but his love towards us is consistent. It hopes all things. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. And then number four, Jesus endures he endures all things. His love for you is enduring, and here's why. Jesus is enduring. Jesus is the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's everlasting. His, he's, he is eternal. And because he is eternal, his love is eternal, and his love is enduring. You cannot stop him from loving you. If you are his, if you're his bride, the scripture calls you, or his daughter or his son, there is nothing you will ever do to get him to stop loving you. His love is irrational. It doesn't make sense. You could put it on a spreadsheet and say, I've done all of these things, therefore he loves me. He doesn't love you because of what you've done. He loves you because he is love. Hallelujah. And his love is enduring. It endures through all things. It's otherworldly. So Hosea and Gomer were not a great match. Match.com would not have hooked them up. <laughs> Parents at the Shanghai marriage market would not have gotten together and said, that's going to work. But a much bigger mismatch than Hosea and Gomer is Jesus and me. A must a much bigger mismatch is Jesus and you. Because Jesus is holy. That word means to be otherworldly. He is pure and perfect and righteous. And I am none of those things. My portfolio, if it was at the Shanghai marriage market or if it was on match.com, would read Eric 
has wandered from God, has pursued things less than God, has found his identity in his accomplishments or his job, has not been the perfect husband and father, has fallen short of the glory of God. That is what my portfolio would read and does read. And the portfolio of Jesus is the perfect one, the holy one of God, righteous, Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords. These don't match. But here is the shocking and otherworldly love of God that Jesus looks at me and my portfolio and says, I want to take all of your sin and bear it on myself and give you all of my portfolio so it's yours. That's what Jesus does for us. Theologians for years, for centuries, and I want you to learn this phrase. I will use it over and over for the next several years. It's called the great exchange. That on the cross, Jesus makes a trade with you. He says, here's my portfolio of perfection. I'm giving it to you and I'm taking your portfolio of sin and I'm putting it on myself. It's the great exchange. Your sin is mine, Jesus says. I'm paying with everything I have. And my forgiveness and my perfection is yours. That's what happens when you become a Christian, when you become his, when you become his bride, when you were married to him. And I know us dudes were like, wait, I'm, I'm the groom, I'm not the bride. Well, the scripture says that when you become a Christian, you are his, you're as if you're his bride. When Kay and I got married 22 years ago, being a pastor, I didn't, I didn't have her sign a prenup or anything. And so we got, that was a joke, we got married. And I had, uh, I had my stuff and her stuff. And all of a sudden, my stuff and her stuff became our stuff. So before it was Eric's and then it was Kay's and then it's now all of ours, which did, wasn't a really big deal for her because my greatest asset at the time was my 1995 Nissan pickup truck, <laughs> which I drove for 18 years. And buddies would make fun of me for it, like, bro, when are you going to get something new? And I had read this uh, Christian financial guy years ago named Larry Burkett who said, buy your car, drive it till it dies, pick it up, dust it off, and drive it some more. <laughs> and I, I believed that guy. And I drove it for 18 years. It was really cool because it only had 72,000 miles on it because the odometer had been broken for 13 <laughs> of the 18 years. So I, I could have sold it because 72,000 highway miles, but I didn't. I, I kept driving it. I kept driving it. And it was impossible to get a speeding ticket in this truck because it would, it would shake violently at about 72 miles an hour. It was awesome. It was like a second Holy Spirit kind of kept you in check. It was amazing. And so this was my truck. So we get married and Kay becomes owner of this truck. Congratulations, baby. This is what she gets. But that's what happens when there's our stuff, I mean, my stuff and her stuff, and all of a sudden it is our stuff. But when you became his, there was your stuff and there was his stuff and all of your sin became his and all of his forgiveness became yours. This is the great exchange. Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, he said this, faith unites the soul 
with Christ as a spouse with her husband. So this is what Luther says happens when you become a Christian, when you believe in Jesus and receive his forgiveness. Faith unites the soul with Christ as a spouse with her husband. Everything which Christ has becomes the property of the believing soul. Everything which the soul has becomes the property of the Christ. Christ possesses all blessings and eternal life. They are thenceforward the property of the soul. The soul has all the iniquities and sins. They become thenceforward the property of Christ. It is then that a blessed exchange commences. This is how much Jesus loves you. That you had sold yourself, that I had sold myself into the slavery of my sin. And Jesus did not stand up in heaven or sit at home and say, fix everything, fix your life, make things right, and then come to me. But that Jesus left heaven and came here and found us on the slave auction block and said, I'm paying with everything I have. The story of the Christian faith is not a story of God giving us instructions about how we're going to make our way to him. The story of the Christian faith is God coming all the way here for us. And when he comes here for us, he gives us his perfection and he takes away all of our sin. And so if you want to receive his forgiveness you have a part to play. If you're Gomer, what do you do in the moment when the one who said he would love you, that his love would endure, shows up and walks forward and pays for you? What do you do? You simply receive this amazing offer of grace and you, you go home. And so what do you do? When Jesus says, I came all the way here, all the way here for you, you simply receive and you say, yes, Jesus, thank you. So people ask, ask me frequently, what do I need to do to become a Christian? This is what you do. You say, thank you. And yes, I believe in you. I believe. Thank you that you came here for me. Thank you for loving me in the midst of my wondering. Thank you for giving me your grace. And I, I believe, I believe in you and I receive, I receive your forgiveness. As we wrap up this series this morning, in the stillness of this moment, in the quietness of this moment, I wanna give you an opportunity to receive his forgiveness. We don't do this every week at Mariners, only several times a year, but it's very important in a very holy moment. So I want us to respect what the Lord is gonna do in this moment. Because some of you for the first time are gonna stand and say, I believe, and you're gonna receive his forgiveness as you do. The scripture says in Romans chapter 10, verse nine, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not just savior, not just moral example, not just teacher, but Jesus is Lord. He's my Lord. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So how do I receive his forgiveness? You simply believe in him. You put your trust and your faith in the one who came here for you. You just go home with him. You just believe in him. You just trust him. It's so hard for us here in our American context because we're so used to having to do a whole bunch of things to earn anything in our life. But understand, if you could earn his forgiveness, Jesus then came here for nothing. But Jesus didn't come here for nothing. He came here because there's nothing we could do to ever earn his love. We just receive his love. We just receive it. So in a moment, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to stand in front of this large group of people and say, I believe, I believe. And by doing that, it takes faith to stand up, faith to stand up and say, I believe. And we believe that as you express belief in Jesus, you receive his forgiveness. Some of you are thinking, bro, you are crazy. I'm not standing up in front of all these people. Totally get it. Hosea probably felt that way as he walked in front of a crowd of people to buy his own wife. Jesus was crucified. Most scholars believe a million people that day in Jerusalem as he was publicly crucified. We believe even in our culture that important moments are marked publicly. So when I married my wife, I said, I do. I believe in us in front of lots of people. And so by standing in front of a group of people and saying, I believe, you are saying, this is not a private thing for me. I I believe, I believe in Jesus. And I'm trusting him for forgiveness. I'm not trying to climb a ladder to get to him. I'm trusting that he came here for me to purchase me, to pursue me, to love me. I believe in him. I believe. And so for the first time, if you have not yet expressed belief in him, and when we believe, we receive his forgiveness, I want to give you an opportunity to stand in front of this group and say, I believe. And so right now, you just stand and you say, I believe. Say it loud so I can hear and then we'll be able to celebrate with you. And as you're standing, you're saying, I believe and you're receiving his forgiveness. So simply stand where you are. Awesome. 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 So good. Let's, uh, let's, let's hold our applause to the end so we can uh, welcome everybody together. I want to hear. Say it loud so I can hear. Awesome. Awesome, man. Say, I want to hear. It's awesome, brother. Yes. Awesome. Amen. So good. I love it. Thank you. Amen. Awesome. Yes, sir. All right, brother. It's great. Thank you. Yes, love it. Yes, you do. Awesome, brother. Yes. Amen. Awesome. Yes, sir. Awesome. Amen. 
Amen. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Awesome. Yes, sir. I see. Great. That's right. Amen. It's great. Awesome. Yes. Awesome, brother. Anybody else? Great. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. Great. Awesome. I believe. All right, brother. Great. Yes. For some of you, you, as you, yes, awesome, man. Interrupt me any time for that. Love that. Love that. It's good, brother. Some of you, as you hear people saying, I believe, you're, you're remembering the moment that you believed for the first time. For me, as I'm going into my senior year in high school, I thought there's no way with all the junk in my life that Jesus would still want me. With all my hypocrisy and selfishness, but his love is so much greater and so much deeper than all of our sin. And he wanted to take it all away and give me all of his forgiveness. And when I said I believe, who the son sets free is free indeed. It's free indeed. Anybody else want to stand and say I believe? Awesome. That's great. Awesome, brother. Beautiful. Awesome, man. Let's welcome those people to the family of God. Yes. Yeah. We're going to stand and sing and 
For those of you who said, I believe, we're gonna have pastors and elders standing down front. And this is an important moment for you because we don't want you just to walk out. We wanna be able to lay a hand on your shoulder and pray with you and welcome you into the family of God. We have a Bible for you. We wanna give you some other information. It won't take just a couple of moments with you, but it's an important moment for us. We wanna be a part of this moment with you. And so in a moment, we're gonna stand and sing and elders and pastors are gonna be here. And as soon as we start singing, you come forward. We wanna pray with you, give you this. And maybe you're here and you, you're like, I wanted to stand, I wanted to stand. I'm I wish I would have stood. We'll have elders and pastors here that wanna pray with you. And for those of us who are, all of us, let's celebrate that his love is greater, that his forgiveness is so deep. Let's stand together and let's sing. Elders and pastors will be here. You start coming forward. If you said, I believe, we wanna pray with you. We wanna give you this. We wanna share this moment with you. We love you so much and so proud of you. Let's sing together.
I believe today, I want you to know this church loves you and we're proud of you and we are for you and we want to walk with you. It's an honor, an honor for us to be a part of this very important moment in your life, the most important moment ever for you, where you receive all of his forgiveness. What a great day. What a great day to be at church together. I want to let you know of a couple things coming up before I close this out um, with our benediction. In three weeks, actually, let me start with next week. Next week, 
my mentor, the man, the legend, Kenton B. Shore, is going to be back teaching. So it's going to be awesome. Excited about that. You want to be here for that. And then in three weeks, we are launching a, a, a teaching series that I, am, I couldn't be more excited about this series. We are going to do a teaching series over five weeks called The Best Chapter Ever. And it is the best chapter ever. It's a study of Romans chapter 8. And so we're going to spend five weeks walking through what, what a lot of scholars say, then if there's one chapter you need to understand in the Bible to understand the Christian faith, that's the chapter you have to get. And so it's a great series for us to understand who we are in Christ, but it's also a great opportunity for us to invite friends who are curious or have questions about the Christian faith. And so that starts in, in three weeks, best chapter ever. We're going to do something different in that series, and I'm going to ask you to help us with this. Typically at 11 o'clock, we have a student service, a high school student service. And so if you're a high school parent, you may have gotten an email. Hopefully you did this week from me and Alex, our high school pastor. Normally during this service, we have a high school service that takes place in the student building. We think that this series, the best chapter ever, walking through Romans 8, is so important for our high schoolers to understand that our high school students are going to be joining us in this service at 11. And so we're excited about having them, which is going to be awesome, which means we need some of you to go to Saturday night because we don't have space. So, and uh, parents, I also want you to know for during that five-week period of time, we're going to have a special youth night every Sunday night for those five weeks where our high school students are going to walk through Essentials of Rooted. So it's going to be really important, parents. We, we hope that you get your, your kids there. It's going to be great. But seriously, um, I wasn't joking about the Saturday night thing. We, we, it, Saturday night is blown up. Uh, we, we, we were having, our, I don't know, around 1,500 or so people on Saturday nights. Now we're, we're um, over 2,000 every Saturday night. And a bunch of people from the 11 moved over to Saturday night. And then now it looks like those seats are now refilled up, back up with new people, which we're really excited about, which means the people who've moved to Saturday night, we're telling them they can't come back to 11. They got to stay on Saturday. <laughs> but we need some of you to switch over to Saturday night. We're doing something fun every Saturday night at the end of the service. So um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. Next week, we have a family game night. So if you are horrible at playing board games at your own family, come and do it with other families. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> that's my wife laughing because I'm horrible at board games. All right, if you're here and there's anything we can pray with you about, we have a prayer team right over here to, to my left, your right, that would love to pray with you. If you said, I believe, or, or still want to talk to someone, this group of people would love to pray with you. They'll be standing here for a couple minutes after the service. If you would like someone to pray with you for healing, we have an elder prayer room to get there. You go through the doors in the back and take a right, and our elders would love to pray with you there. Let's extend our hands and receive God's blessing. Jesus, you say of your people in your word that they are your bride, that this is your bride, that you have clothed them in your righteousness. I pray this week as the world threatens to beat them up, as despair threatens to get them down, that you would remind them of your unending, otherworldly, shocking love. That every moment of this new week, that they would be overwhelmed with how great and deep and wide the love that you have for them is. Hold them close to you this new week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.